Hello. Hi there. So uh, welcome back to the weirdest thing post Halloween, uh, not super <laughs> special episode. Yes, your post Halloween <laughs> podcast. Yeah, where it's um, Halloween every day. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny because like I've I've definitely been seeing on social media like people sort of being like, "Oh, I'm so sad. Spooky season is over," and I'm like, I don't know. Like, come to my house. It's pretty much always spooky season. It's like, always spooky season. I am super excited though that it is not fucking baking hot anymore. Yes, yes, I'm happy about that. But it's interesting. Like I I know plenty of people who live for Christmas, no shade whatsoever. But Christmas isn't really my jam. I don't I don't yeah. like I I don't know. It's it, like I don't get like super ex- I love fall mm-hmm. uh and all that stuff, but I'm not like oh my god, like Christmas carols and you know yeah. decorating and I don't know. Well, I mean, it's probably a combination. For me, it's a combination of the fact that I am A, Jewish, and B, like, kind of a metal horror guy that, like, yeah, the whole Christmas carols, Santa, happy, whatever, like. I thought you were trying to say that you are A, Jewish. I and I was Jewish. like, yeah. <laughs> look, here's the thing. Speaking straight from the heart, I am a Jewish. Um <laughs> First and foremost, what you need to know about me is I am a Jewish. I am one of those Jewish. Please yeah. uh, put that on your dating profile. <laughs> I think I'm going to have to do that now. Hey, who are you? Uh, my name is Scotty Milder. Yes, my name is Amelia Ampuero. Let me not anglicize my name. My name is Amelia Ampuero. I am <laughs> one of your hosts of the Weirdest Thing podcast, as is Scotty Milder. Together, we make up the team that are here to tell you about the weirdest shit we have found on the internet, in the world, all of the things. In in life. In life. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, and I think I'm going first this week. Yes. Oh, also, can we just give a special shout out just one last time to Chad and Abe for coming on to the episode last week? Well, it wasn't last. I mean, technically it was last week. You know what I mean? For our (laughs) last episode. Uh, (laughs) Thank you so much to those awesome dudes for coming on and sharing their spooky stories. Uh, We hope you guys like that episode. I feel like I've heard from a lot of people who had a good time listening to it. Well, I've been hearing a few from uh, various Los Alamos denizens I've been hearing Mm -hmm. some almost like similar stories to mine so like I may have to do I'm I'm, let me just say I'm being encouraged now to do some research into what the fuck's going on up there because yeah I don't know what it is with because it's specifically like little girls right yeah it's like I've heard at least I think three to four like spooky little girl stories Mm -mm. um, in Los Alamos, which is that starts to feel very X-Files like strange. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's gonna be some type of weird, I don't know, fucking settler school tragedy or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna I might actually end up seeing if I can do a little bit of research at some point. But yeah, but it was uh it was super fun having those guys on. It was also yes. uh we should say we did go, we said we were going to, and we did. We did go we did, the... we finally did something we said we were going to do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we went to the premiere of the painted lady episode of that's some scary shit. It 
yes. the guild cinema and that was a super fun and b like really pretty fucking scary actually yeah pretty dang spooky scotty want a hat uh, i want a hat not- from the painted lady that's not the spooky part, but um, yeah, really spooky. Like there's definitely some, some stuff going on there. You can learn a lot. I think almost like every major ghost hunting show has done an episode at the painted mm-hmm. lady. So if you are into that, go and check it out. Cause ah, the stuff that's happening there is not a bleeping joke. No. And, and I think they've actually, by the time this episode airs, I think that episode, the painted lady episode of that some scary shit will be up on YouTube. So yes, maybe I'll go ahead and throw a link into our show notes. Yes, do. Uh, but in the meantime, well, I guess let's just get into our stories. So yes. And I actually do have a kind of spooky New Mexico story for you guys. Fantastic. Uh, so and you're going first. I'm because going first. I went I went first the last two episodes. So it's your turn now. It is my turn. Yeah. God. And I actually I had a whole other thing planned. Um how was... often do you think it happens to us that we're like, <laughs> this is totes what we're doing for the episode? And then yeah. 36 hours before we are set to record, either one or both of us is like changed my mind, yeah. completely different topic <laughs> that none of the research I've been doing well, for the last week will yeah what happened this time i was gonna i was gonna do something on and i still kind of want to do it but i gotta find a way to do it i was gonna do something on the challenger disaster and kind of the aftermath Mm -hmm. but as i got into it it's just so fucking dense and technical and like i was like no one wants to hear me talk about the freezing temperature of o-rings like (laughs) except for amelia apparently because she's a 12 year old. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that that's, that's, I'm going to have to put some thought into how to approach that one where it's not ah. just like a science engineering lecture. I feel like that had, like we've had a couple of those things pop up where it's like, Ooh, we're going to do this. And then when we actually start doing the research, it's like one, this topic is way too vast to do mm-hmm. one episode on or right. two. It's so dense that like I, I like we have to figure well, out an angle to come at it from or else it's just going to be us reading like the fucking wikipedia page right and then like finding a narrative sometimes isn't always super easy so yeah. so i uh scrapped that and i did i actually did a story that i've kind of wanted to do for a while okay uh, like for the last couple months when i first learned about this and it's actually kind of perfect because as some of my writer friends know and our writer listeners know this is national novel writing month and i'm actually doing like a slightly uh fictionalized version of part of this story i should say for my project for Mm. national novel writing month um so this is a speaking like history of new mexico story general like upfront content warning um this is gonna be kind of grisly in the way that like my sonny bean story was okay so just you know prepare yourself Okay. Uh, for that. But this is the story of Charles Kennedy, New Mexico's first serial killer. Ooh. So okay. my sources for this are two articles from legendsofamerica.com. One is Elizabethtown, New Mexico, Gone But Not Forgotten. And then the other is Charles Kennedy, Old West Serial Killer. And then also a short little YouTube video from the editor Mountain Voice. It's called Charles Kennedy, New Mexico's Serial Killer. Okay. So first I want to just talk about the history of Elizabethtown. Okay. Does not exist anymore. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, but it's it's interesting. So if anyone is, you know, New Mexico native, you've probably heard of the Enchanted Circle. Have you ever heard of this? 
Mm. sometimes known as the enchanted trail i think maybe it's basically maybe. it's this loop that runs sort of from taos over to this town called angel fire mm-hmm. and then you can take go up there to another little town called red river take oh, yeah. that over to i think cuesta and then back down to taos okay. and it's just like the most beautiful part of the state Rude, but it's also but okay <laughs> i mean it's 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 pretty hard to beat that that whole <laughs> like northern mountainous region of new mexico is is just pretty gorgeous Mm -hmm. but it also has a pretty dark sort of typically old west history so like chad mentioned the the saint james hotel yes last episode that town cimarron it's not exactly on that enchanted loop or enchanted circle but it's Mm -hmm. kind of cimarron is kind of just like right a little bit to the east of there Mm -hmm. um this is like typical old west you know mining camps gunfighting you know like what you think of when you think of of like the yeah like the wild west the wild west exactly and elizabethtown was just kind of like right smack in the middle of that Mm. so it's now a ghost town i've been through there if you drive up but it's between angel fire and red river um it's very near the town of eagle nest and if you go just a little bit off of the highway there's a road that kind of goes right by what used to be elizabethtown and you wouldn't even like know that it was a thing it's just like there's a couple kind of crumbling buildings and that's it Hmm. But at the time, it was actually a huge deal. So it was founded around 1866, which was just one year after the end of the Civil War. And basically the way it happened was north of Las Vegas, New Mexico, there was an army post called Fort Union. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, the soldiers were there hanging out, doing whatever soldiers in the Old West did. And Mm -hmm. a group of uh, Ute Native American tribes members showed up at their gate offering to trade some quote pretty rocks for supplies okay the captain uh who was i think he was kind of i'm not sure if he was like in charge of fort union but he he was one of the like ranking officers of fort union this captain named william h moore he actually knew one of these uh youths okay uh he had actually found him badly wounded i think a year or two earlier and kind of helped him nurse him back to health he had like taken him back to the fort and helped nurse him back to health so they kind of had this friendly relationship after that okay so, you know, they they let these guys in, they looked at the pretty rocks, and this Captain Moore immediately saw that, well, the reason these rocks are pretty is because they're filled with copper. Oh, so he was like, okay. um, just curious, where did you find these rocks? Mm-hmm. And this uh, Ute man, who I could not find his name anywhere, unfortunately. Of course. Of course. Um, basically said, well, you know, there's a whole bunch of these rocks. They're on the upper slope of what's called Baldy Mountain, which is way up in the mountains, way north of where we are. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of on the far western edge of what was called the Maxwell Land Grant. Mm-hmm. So let's just talk a little bit about the Maxwell Land Grant. Well, okay. there's a whole like history to it that I'm not going to The New Mexico into. Land Grants are mm-hmm. a whole, the whole, a whole thing. other thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the the Maxwell land grant, it was 1.7 million acres of land. Wow. It stretched from Colfax County, New Mexico up into Los Animas County, Colorado. Okay. Like if you look at it on the map, it's just like this huge chunk of like northern New Mexico, southern Colorado. Mm-hmm. Um, it was called the Bubian Miranda land grant. It had started or had been formed in 1841 
which was just five years before the Mexican-American War. The land had been given to a French fur trapper named Charles Bubien, who had moved to what at the time was Mexico, had become a Mexican citizen. I think he had married a Mexican woman. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he had partnered up with this uh, Mexican businessman from Chihuahua, a guy named Guadalupe Miranda. Mm-hmm. And the two of them together, like I said, it's there's a whole history of how this all transpired. But they were basically granted this huge chunk of land from mm-hmm. the Mexican government. Then just five years later, uh, the Mexican-American War happened and this land became incorporated into the United States. Mm-hmm. In 1857, a fur trapper, a very successful fur trapper from Illinois, a guy named Lucian B. Maxwell, he bought Guadalupe Miranda's interest in the land grant for a total of $2,745. Do we have a conversion rate for that? Yeah. Where they okay. Um, do you want to take a guess? Just okay. Kidding. How much was it? And what it year was, was it? And how just much was under, it? It was 1857, just under $3,000. I'm going to say $2.5 billion. Billion dollars? Yes. I'm going to say billion dollars. <laughs> uh, not quite. <laughs> <laughs> that was just over eight million by today's. Mm, damn it. Okay. So this land grant is two times the size of Rhode Island. Jeez. And it was, I think to this day, it's considered the single largest land grant in the United States history. And it included a big chunk of this, what we now call the Enchanted Circle, Enchanted mm. Loop. Uh mm-hmm. included the towns of Cimarron, Springer, Raton, Elizabethtown, mm-hmm. etc. So this Captain Moore, he's down in Las Vegas at Fort Union. He's being told about, you know, well, it looks like there's uh, up on the western edge of this land grant, there's some rich copper ore, you know. Mm-hmm. So he was like, I'm just going to take a few of my soldiers and we're very quietly going to go with my friends here, the the Utes, mm-hmm. and they're going to show us uh, where they found these rocks. Okay. So they go up to the area, they're exploring around, they find more of these copper rocks, and then they decide to make camp. Three of the soldiers make camp on the banks of Willow Creek, and they're just kind of fucking around. They weren't even serious. One of them pulls out a gold pan from a saddlebag. It was just like, I'm just going to see what's in this creek. And of course, he finds gold in the creek. Ooh. So now we've got copper, we've got gold. It's yeah. game fucking on for this region well these (laughs) it almost reminds me have you ever um what's that george clooney movie uh or that takes place in iraq where it's like the gold isn't it like three kings three kings is that the one you're talking about this almost feels like three kings to me because you have this like group of soldiers being like yeah we're up here doing quote soldier things Uh meanwhile we're we're gonna try and keep all this gold and shit to ourselves right 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 right. god i Um, forgot about that movie yeah hold up george clooney mark Wahlberg. one of the Wahlbergs. yeah i think it was mark Wahlberg. and um spike jones of all people the director but who was the th- it's who's the third? That's who's Spike the third Jones. king? It was Spike Jones. Really? Yeah. I'm, I'm looking that. Okay. Yeah, look keep it talking. up. I'm pretty I'm sure. I'm right. Yeah. Because it was like his one kind of acting job. Because I really feel like the third person was a black man. So. Well, there might. the Were there four of them? Because you're right. I think there was a black man. No, there I think Spike Jones was in it. I just think that he was a small part. He wasn't a small part, but he made, but you're right. There was, I think there was. Well, he's oh. fourth build and the person I'm thinking of is in fact Ice Cube. So I okay. fucking told you. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, we were both right. I don't know. <laughs> he was not. Spike Jones was not. He's not even on the cut. Co- he's not even on. Sorry. Okay. Daniel, she's getting Sorry. mad at me. She's <laughs> getting mad at me. 
He's not even on the poster. Okay. Um, okay. Continue, please. Anyway, so they're, they're going to try and keep this secret to themselves. Well, it's late in the season. They need to get back to the fort before the snows roll in. So, but they're like, they make a little pact amongst themselves. Like, we're not going to tell anybody about this. And then on mm-hmm. a, a ponderosa pine tree next to the cap, they carve the words discovery tree into the pine so that okay. they can find it again. Okay. Um, and then they make their way back to Fort Union. And of course, they sucked at keeping secrets and started blabbing about what they found. Uh-huh. So by the time they make it back up there in the spring of the next year, a bunch of people are like pouring in, you know. Yeah. Lucian Maxwell himself, who I think by this time was kind of an old man, he saw an opportunity to make money because these were, you know, these were all squatters essentially coming into his land. Right. Looking for their fortune. So he's like, I'm going to charge fees for the use of my land, fees for the claims. We're going to charge tolls for the road that's constructed into the valley. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, so he's making money. And then he joins up with this Captain Moore and several other businessmen and they founded the copper mining company okay. in 1867 and then created the, like made their own claim so you, if anyone's watched the show deadwood like i just imagine this being very much like deadwood it's like this uh-huh. this rough and tumble mining camp essentially that's like mm-hmm. pretty much lawless but it starts to kind of evolve into a town so this okay. Captain Moore and his brother John, they opened the first like permanent building in town. They opened a general store kind of just southwest of the this Mount Baldy. Um, that was mm-hmm. in June of 1867. And then the miners started like popping up tents all around the store. Within a month, okay. they're starting to replace the tents with cabins. And so it's turning into mm. this town with the general store kind of right in the middle. They ended up naming the town Elizabethtown after Captain Moore's daughter. Her name was Elizabeth Catherine Moore. She ended up becoming the school teacher in town, and she actually spent her entire life there. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then it was very quickly became known as E-Town to the locals. Within a year, there are 400 people in E-Town. More and more entrepreneurs were moving in. They're putting up, they put up a sawmill. They put up a brewery. They put up three different hotels, three dance halls. Wow. Drugstore, saloons, brothels, gambling houses. Oh, um, yes. So again, think Deadwood. You okay. Know. okay. <laughs> <laughs> By 1869, it had grown to 100 buildings. And then families started moving in. This sort of softened some of the town's rough edges. They ended up putting up a schoolhouse. They put up a Protestant church. They put up uh-huh. a Catholic church. They founded a newspaper. The whole thing starts to become kind of legit. By its peak, there were 7,000 people living there off and on. And it all kind of, this is important, it kind of fluctuated with the weather. So like in the summer and spring and summer and early fall, there could be anywhere up to 7,000 people there trying to make their money. But by Mm -hmm. the time winter rolls around, a bunch of them move on. Um, So it's a very transient population. Unfortunately, within a few years, by kind of the mid-1870s, the the copper and gold loads had pretty much dried up. So like they the, do. Like they do. Mm-hmm. Like people wonder, like, how come there are so many ghost towns all around the West and you don't see all these ghost towns out east? And it's like, well, because of the mine. Yeah. Because like copper mines, gold mines, they would turn into these big towns that would then die within yeah. a decade. You know, so by 1875, there are only 100 people left. Ooh, creepy. Okay. And then, pretty much by the 1900s, the whole area was abandoned. Mm, okay. Okay. But while it was like, you know, rocking and rolling, you know, it, 
these these towns they drew all types of people right <laughs> some were just you know miners looking to you know make their claims some were like businessmen and entrepreneurs like i'm gonna put up a general store i'm gonna put up a drugstore you know mm-hmm. uh you'd have uh preachers come in you'd have you know like i said school teachers you know and of course you had murderers murderers yes okay so let's talk about charles kennedy let's do it charles kennedy he was a mountain man he lived just outside of elizabethtown in the hills between elizabethtown and taos so like between elizabethtown and taos it's essentially pretty close to what we call the high road to taos mm-hmm. um if you're driving up from albuquerque it's very mountainous um very like wooded area mm-hmm. whereas elizabethtown itself is in this valley it's called the moreno valley mm-hmm. um so as you're getting into kind of the foothills of going up towards mount baldy this charles kennedy and his wife were living up there he was described as a mountain man i tried to figure out what mountain man actually means and it's just like a guy who lived off the land in the mountains pretty much <laughs> like there's not there's nothing really just like a frontiersman you know right he was described as like full bearded and big and husky okay. um his wife was named Rosa. She was also Ute. She was a Ute okay. woman. They had moved there with their three-year-old son in 1865. And then up on this pass, this mountain pass, which was the Palo Flechado Pass between E-Town and Taos, they had put up what was called a traveler's rest. Okay. And so traveler's rest is like, think of it as like sort of somewhere between like a homestead, a rest stop, a general store, and a restaurant. Mm-hmm. Like it's basically a place that, you know, you found them all throughout the West on wagon trains and various trails where travelers moving through, they would have come to a traveler's rest where they could expect to, like a home cooked meal, you might be able to get some basic supplies. Uh, sometimes some of the bigger ones, they'd even offer like rooms for the night. Um, and then so you kind off. of like an old timey rest stop, but a, like with more amenities. Yeah. So sort of somewhere between a rest stop and a bed and breakfast kind of. Mm, okay. Okay. Well, these travelers rests were, they could be pretty sketchy. Okay. So what's kind of interesting is almost at the exact same time out in Kansas, the bloody benders. Yeah, they had a traveler's rest. Mm -hmm. Yep. And they were also real murdery about it. That they were doing with like a curtain. (laughs) They were like, yeah, I want to do the bloody benders at some point because that's a fascinating story. But it's actually really similar. Mm -hmm. You know, the bloody benders is pretty well known. It's kind of like become like American folklore, you know? Mm -hmm. Whereas like this Charles Kennedy, I'd never heard of him, but these, these are happening at almost the exact same time. Interesting. Okay. So basically, he had put up this, he and his wife put up this traveler's rest. Travelers were moving through, and some of them just never showed up again. Mm-hmm. Um, and no one was really aware. No one was noticing because, like I said, the population was so transient. And people are just moving in and out all the time. So no one's like reporting anybody missing. Right. Well, and I mean, it's, you know, maybe they were murdered. Maybe they were eaten by a bear. Maybe they were, you know, maybe they drove off a mountain. Maybe they got caught in a freeze. Like, yeah, it was more surprising if somebody ended up where they were supposed to be going. Yeah, basically. I I feel like during those times. When you read stories about life in the old West, like my takeaway on all of these stories is like, oh, 
like if you were forced to live in the old west just never leave your fucking house because like everything's trying to kill you yes yes (laughs) so yeah so you know people like i said people moving through some of them sort of disappearing but no one's no one's paying attention Mm -hmm. then in the fall of 1870 the shit hits the fan okay because rosa who's charles kennedy's wife bursts into john pearson's saloon in elizabethtown and she's covered in blood so there's a couple guys in the saloon a couple shady characters i should say one Uh is a guy named clay allison i'm not gonna go through the whole history of this guy but he's like your typical like old west kind of cowboy where he's like you know he's herding cattle he's working for ranchers he's also like sort of a gangster he's sometimes working as an enforcer he's a gunfighter he had actually fought for the confederacy during the civil war and then joined the kkk so you know great super nice guy he had been accused of murdering a union soldier who had come to confiscate his family farm in tennessee Mm -hmm. and then sort of took off ended up in new mexico and or ended up in texas then in new mexico worked like i said worked as a ranch hand gunfighter when he was asked later in life uh what like what was your what was your profession he said i'm a shootist so uh buddy not a real profession yeah um basically i i kill people for a living yeah Okay. And he's there with his buddy, a guy named Davy Crockett. Hey. Uh, hey. Okay. Now, this is not the Davy Crockett that we know. This is his, oh, like, uh, ne'er-do-well nephew. Are <laughs> Davy you serious? Crockett. Yeah. <laughs> he was also, like, kind of an outlaw gunfighter. He was he was really known in Elizabethtown. Like, he and uh, this Clay Allison had kind of ended up in Elizabethtown at around the same time. Mm-hmm. Immediately became fast friends. Okay. And were kind of known as, like, the bad boys in town. And okay. Davy Crockett in particular, again, not that Davy Crockett. We're talking the shitty Davy Crockett. Okay, okay. Um, he was kind of known to be like the town bully. And he was known to be like, oh, yeah, he's no good when he's drunk. He's real dangerous when he's drunk. Ugh. And in fact, just a few years later, he ended up murdering someone in 1876. And I will tell that story someday if I ever do the story of the St. James Hotel. Oh, okay. it's part of the whole St. James Hotel story. Sidebar, mean, violent drunks are my least favorite yeah. kind of drunks. Like, Again. give me a... Give me a weepy drunk any day of the week. A happy over, drunk. Uh, oh, a happy drunk. Give me. I well, that's also because I am a happy drunk. Yeah. So I'm like my people. But like, I would much rather take the drunk that is going to sit there and cry to me about how their fifth grade boyfriend was the love of their life, <laughs> and they've never gotten over it, rather than somebody who gets mean and violent when they're drunk. Yeah. Like, well, no and I think, people. and I think back in the old West, like the impression you get is that these were all like mean, violent drugs. Again, Everybody just was a mean, but well, you have, don't I mean, leave I your house. You, I like, guess you had to be. Yeah. <laughs> Like, well, I, like, yeah, because if you were a nice drunk, you were going to end up dead anyways. So. Right, right, right. And, and like, I mean, I'm kind of a sleepy drunk, so I really wouldn't have survived out there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so anyway, um, Rosa busts into the right. saloon. Right. She's covered in blood. Davy Crockett and Clay Allison are like, mm-hmm. you know, being very solicitous. They get her a chair. They sit her down. They ask her what happened. And she tells them the story. That on this particular day, her husband, mm-hmm. Charles, who I think people knew 
you know, mm-hmm. they knew he was up there. He was running this traveler's rest. She tells the story about how he had lured a lone traveler into the rest uh, by promising a, him a hot meal. And then while they were eating, this traveler asked the family, quote, if there are any Indians around. Well, Charles and Rose's son, who I wasn't able to, I couldn't find what his name was, uh, uh-huh. but he was still, was still like a little child, uh-huh. said, quote, can't you smell the one Papa put under the floor? So... Like I said, this, this is, is where why, this is where the content warning comes in. This is why you do not have children because I swear to God they will always snitch on you. Like I children, love that that's your takeaway. <laughs> I, how many people do we know who have gotten in trouble because their their kids have been like, "Well, it was so fun when mommy took me to the new place with their new friend," and it's like, "Shut up, kid! Nobody fucking asked you to say anything. Shut up." Oh my god! Yeah, no, that's that's this is the the murdering. The, mor- the moral, the moral of the story is, don't have kids if you want to get into any kind of shit. Yeah, because yeah. they'll just rat you out. Yeah, you heard it exactly. here first. Hot take. Uh, yeah. Well, this is where the content warning comes in because okay, okay. Uh, Charles goes into a rage at this point that mm. he got you know narked out by his kid. So okay, he shoots yes. the guest and then he bashed his own son's head against the fireplace and killed him. Okay. I am not advocating those measures. No. Let's just, <laughs> yeah. let's let's, just be clear. Let's, let's I'm make just it clear to not have the weirdest thing podcast, like strongly takes this firm stand against murdering your children. Let's yes. just stipulate that. Yes. Yeah. But so he murders this guest, murders his own son. Oh my God. Throws the bodies into the cellar and then locks his wife up in the house and goes outside to just basically drink himself stupid. Like oh. in the woods. Well, Rosa at this point had had enough. I would imagine seeing your son murdered by your drunk husband mm-hmm. is probably the final straw. So yeah. she waits for him to pass out and then she shimmied up through the chimney and got away. Dang. Okay. And this is how she ends up down in town at this Pearson saloon. So she tells the story and as she's telling the story, she admits that this had actually been going on for a long time and that Charles had killed up to 14 people who had come into the traveler's rest. Ooh, Okay. Well, that's all, as, as you can imagine, Clay Allison and Davy Crockett, real, real level-headed guys. Real, <laughs> you know, yeah. they're, they're, you know, they're by the book. Yeah. Um, you know, so what, what do they do? They go gather up a posse to go look for Charles. Okay. And I think Charles had kind of wandered off into the woods and then just, like I said, drunk himself stupid. And a second posse went to the house to search for evidence to support what Rosa was saying. And they found the two bodies in the cellar. Mm. They all, excuse me while I'm belching. Hold on. Okay. They they also (laughs) found... They also, I guess I'm going to have to leave this in now. They also found some partially charred human remains. Uh, They found two full skeletons under the floor. And um, later they found another skull like outside nearby. Wow. So I don't know that they've ever determined for sure if it was 14 people, but it sure seemed like it was possible. Mm-hmm. It's clearly a good number of people. Mm-hmm. Later, also a witness to one of those murders supposedly came forward and testified because, so as you can imagine, they found Charles pretty much right away because I think mean, he was just passed out. Like, right. You know, they drug him back to town. He was given a pretrial on October 3rd, 1870. This is where that witness testified that he had seen Charles shoot a traveler. Okay. 
the court ordered that Kennedy be held over for a grand jury indictment. Okay. Which again, you know, by the book here, people. Well, as happens, uh, rumors start to spread through the town. And the rumor is that Charles has got himself a lawyer. The lawyer is going to bribe the judge. He's going to bribe the grand jury, and they're going to buy his freedom. So our not hot-headed friends, uh, Clay Allison and Davy Crockett, (laughs) they decide to take matters into their own hands. They get Mm -hmm. a bunch of dudes together. They go to the jail. They drag Charles Kennedy out to subject him to some frontier justice. Frontier justice. So this is kind of fascinating because what happens actually... Uh, if you guys remember, Amelia talked about El Muerto. I did. Back in our Sleepy Washington Hollow Washington Irving. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Back actually when I did the Sunny Bean story. Yes. The Oops Trigger Warning episode. Yeah. <laughs> well, this story of what happened to Charles Kennedy is actually kind of similar to the legend of El Muerto, just in the like details. Okay. So they drug him out of the, they drug him out of the jail, threw mm-hmm. a rope around his neck and dragged him around by a horse up and down Main Street. Obviously, he was dead. They kept dragging him back and forth. Then finally, according to legend, Clay Allison cut his head off, placed the head on a stick, Mm. and then rode the 29 miles down to Cimarron, where he demanded that the head be staked on the fence outside of the Lambert Inn. Now, the Lambert Inn is important because that, of course, later became the St. James Hotel. Oh, yeah. And then as the legend goes, the head stayed there for months where it kind of mummified and then finally just vanished one night. Ew. Now, this doesn't actually make sense. Okay. (laughs) Because this all happened (laughs) in 1870. The Lambert Inn wasn't actually built until 1872. Uh, Okay. So what people think the actual true story is, is that the owner of the Lambert Inn was Mm -hmm. a guy named Fred Lambert. He did own a saloon in Elizabethtown. So it's assumed Mm -hmm. that if the story is true, Allison probably put the severed head in front of uh fred lambert's saloon okay and then later once the saint james became infamous the story was just kind of retconned into that lore so okay and that is the quick and dirty story of charles kennedy new mexico's first serial killer spooky yeah what was it with people deciding to throw heads up everywhere i mean it's it's just very medieval right like right i mean it's just that thing where it's like oh man like you remove the veneer of like law and order like Mm -hmm. humans just revert to like the worst fucking savagery i mean it is lord of the flies like and not the the flies yes yeah. yeah Yeah, pretty much exactly. And like, not that I have any sympathy for this uh, Charles Kennedy. But I'm just thinking of the people that were like, you know, passing through town and they were like, oh, there's a severed head on a stake. Yeah. Like, are you going to want to stay at that hotel or drink at that saloon? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe people did, you know, maybe dark tourists. (laughs) (laughs) Precisely. They were like, fucking right. Like super excited about it. Weirdos. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. I do want to say that, like, just, just to reiterate what I said, like, it's so fascinating to me because that part of, I mean, New Mexico in general has a lot of really dark history. Yeah. But that part of the state, like, it is so beautiful up there. I mean, mm-hmm. so, like, now I go up there because Angel Fire, Red River, mm-hmm. like, these are ski areas. 
Mm-hmm. And then that loop, that enchanted loop over to Taos. Right. Really is. It's just gorgeous. But then mm-hmm. it's, it kind of reminds me of, I think I've talked about it on here. Like when I went to Scotland and Scotland's just the most beautiful country in the world. And every like beautiful rolling hill. Like if you ask someone, mm-hmm. well, what's the story of that hill? It's like, oh, that's where the British massacred a bunch of Highlanders right. or something. Like right. it's just everything has that kind of history. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness well done i had never heard of that before i'd yeah. never heard of that dude before so good to know that uh that was our first and nowhere near the last serial killer that's nope. uh gone through the state of new mexico nope Ugh. okay ready to move on Yep. Fantastic. Okay. Teeny bit of a cold open for mine. Okay. So in 2015, uh, there was a woman in Australia who was packing up her house. She was moving. Mm -hmm. Uh, and one day she had been packing up the cupboards and in doing that had been like squatting for most of the day. Mm -hmm. Um, by the end of the day, she noticed that her calves had like ballooned in size. Mm. Uh, her feet were numb. She was having trouble walking. This is actually a condition known as compartment condition hmm. and all of the, this this condition this compartment condition actually caused her to trip and fall and she wasn't able to get up so she ended up spending like hours on the floor she finally hmm. was taken to a hospital and there it was discovered that the culprit of this condition was nothing more than the pair of skinny jeans she had been wearing which had to be cut off of her body Ooh. yep today i'm going to talk to you all about deadly fashion nice Nice uh, sources for this are The Daily Beast, historyofyesterday.com, BBC, vice.com, Gizmodo, Cracked, The Paris Review, and a teeny bit of Wikipedia, uh, just a little bit. Okay, so I think we all are probably pretty aware that the fashion industry uh, has been and continues to be incredibly cruel, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, whether you're talking about sweatshops or unethically sourced materials or whatever the hell uh, Mm -hmm. folks go to pretty great lengths and turn a blind eye to a wide array of horrors uh in in the name of fashion yeah but today i'm going to talk to you mostly uh, about garments or practices that regularly killed and injured the people who wore these garments instead of the people who made them (laughs) as i take my hat off because i'm Scotty's just going to start stripping down. Um, he's going to be starkers by the end of this. Ooh, I can't to get these clothes off of me. Uh, okay, so let's get two of the most well-known examples out of the way first. We're going to start with corsets. Mm-hmm. Um, so I talked about this a little bit in the Gibson Girl segment, I think, of our first Odds and Ends episode. Mm-hmm. But in case anybody needs a refresher, corset is a supportive undergarment meant to train the torso into a desired shape. And that shape varied depending on the time period that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Now, like I said, I believe in that episode, corsets are, or I'm sorry, not in that episode, like I just said moments ago. Corsets are at the top of the list in terms of deadly fashion because we mm-hmm. all know the stories of women fainting and squishing your organs. You and talked about this stuff. in the Impressisi episode too. Yes, bit. yes, as well. The truth is that a corset worn the way it is designed to be worn is not only perfectly safe, but it's also actually like a very supportive garment that mm-hmm. you know can help you do a variety of activities. It provides support for your core. It improves posture and all those things. I, but- I should probably wear one. <laughs> We can, we can get you a corset. There, there are corsets for, for bras, for dudes. Yeah. Um, okay. The problem 
with corsets comes when humans like sort of couldn't leave well enough alone and they started tight lacing their corsets to create this exaggerated silhouette. So tight lacing is the practice of lacing a corset beyond what is natural and supportive to extremely modify the shape of the torso, either temporarily or permanently. Mm -hmm. Uh, I believe the Kardashians have hawked waist trainers Mm -hmm. uh, at various points throughout their careers you guys can't see the air quotes that she's doing but they're very exaggerated (laughs) okay so the practice of tight lacing became popular during the 1840s and 50s prior to that the fashion had been uh had included these sort of artificially inflated shoulders that because they were so broad like because women in their dresses were so broad in the shoulders they could Mm -hmm. sort of have a natural waist and it would just by virtue of the big shoulders look you know very trim Mm -hmm. but around the 1840s and 1850s those big shoulders went out of fashion and like god forbid a woman show up in public in her natural waist Mm -hmm. so tightly corsets, they could constrict the lungs and this would prevent the lower lobes of the lungs from expanding while breathing. This in and of itself wasn't uncomfortable. The problem was that if a woman since corsets were normally worn by women, although not exclusively. But the problem was, is that if somebody wearing a tight-laced corset came down with say pneumonia or tuberculosis, they couldn't adequately fight the disease off. Right. And they would die. Yeah. Additionally, it's believed that tight-laced corsets would cause indigestion, constipation, fainting, internal bleeding, and permanent disfigurement of the body. If you've ever done any looking into corsets, you'll have seen the drawings of like what prolonged corset wear will do to like your Mm. ribs and your organs. And so you just basically look like a melted candle. Yeah. Um, in 1903, a 42 year old mother of six, her name was Mary Halliday. She died suddenly of what seemed to be a seizure Mm. during her autopsy. Doctors found two eight and three quarter inch pieces of corset steel in her heart. Yeah. The ends had rubbed of these two pieces had rubbed together from the movement of her body and had become razor sharp and had somehow entered her body and gone into her heart and killed her. Yes. That's insane. Yeah. That's that I think is one of the more like corsets are deadly popular stories, I Mm. guess. So yeah, that's, that's those deadly corsets Our next, probably most popular or most well-known fashion. This is practice. This isn't a garment, Mm -hmm. but this is a practice is foot binding. Mm. Yeah. So the practice of foot binding, I am going to say here is, is, has a lot to do with China's history, specifically their imperial history. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to give a real kind of Cliff's Notes version of the whole thing. But if you are interested in learning more about it, I I suggest that you do because, I mean, just China's history is fascinating. Right. Okay. So foot binding was a practice common in late imperial China, and it is the practice of mutilating the feet of young girls in order to change their shape and size. And this is the reason why they did this is because, um, small feet were considered a sign of beauty at the time. And the pinnacle of foot 
fashion, I guess, was something that was called the golden lotus foot. And that Mm. was a foot that came in at just under, at just about four and a half inches. Wow. Yeah. So again, this is uh, an adult woman with a four and a half inch foot. So the story, the sort of tale that goes around why foot uh, around why foot binding became a thing was that Emperor Xiao Bohuan had a favorite consort and her name was Pan Yunu. And she had these like delicately teeny tiny little feet mm. and she would dance and, and all that. And everybody was like, Oh my God, look at her adorable little feet and blah, blah, blah. There is no evidence that Pan, you know, ever bound her feet, but rather that she just had naturally tiny feet. Yeah. I knew a girl in college who was like five, seven, five, eight, and she wore a size five shoe. Wow. And until she pointed it out to me, I didn't notice it. And then after that, her feet were like, pink, like she had like the yeah. teeniest time. I was, I didn't know how she like stayed upright. I, at yeah, any I mean, I'm always, because I have like my big size 14 wide clown feet. So whenever I see people with feet like that, it always, I never understand how people don't just topple over. Just fall over. Yeah. Yeah. So like I said, there was no evidence that she ever bound her feet, but regardless, her dainty little feet set off a a pretty horrific fashion trend. Mm -hmm. Um, I will also say that foot binding varied according to region, class, age, mm-hmm. etc. But what most people think of as foot binding was accomplished by the following. I'm going to give a content warning here. If you are squeamish, mm-hmm. uh, skip ahead a bit because this is not nice. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. So the process of foot binding had to be started before the arch of the foot had completely developed. So most girls started the foot binding process between the age of four and nine. Mm, Okay. Mm -hmm. The feet would be soaked in a warm solution. I saw some places that were like, it was herbs and animal blood. I saw other sources that said that it was vinegar or urine. Mm. Uh, there was probably a bunch of different like recipes for this, but they were soaked in this solution to soften the foot. Mm -hmm. The toenails were then cut back as far as possible to prevent ingrowns and infections. This is where stuff starts to get nasty. The toes were then curled under. I'm sort of uh, demonstrating with my hand here for Scotty. The toes were curled under and pressed with great force and squeezed into the sole of the foot until the toes broke. Mm. At that point, the toes would be held tightly against the sole of the foot and the arch of the foot was broken. Mm. Then the foot was tightly wrapped in bandages that had been soaked in that soaking mixture. Mm, Okay. Then the bandages, they would like be wrapped in like a sort of figure eight pattern. And then the ends of the bandages were sewn closed so that the girl could not loosen them. Mm. Okay. The feet were not, we're not in the clear just yet. Uh, the feet would be unbound regularly. And this depended a lot on class. Like if you were of a, of a higher class, your feet would be unwrapped and rewrapped every day. If you were more like rural or mm-hmm. uh, peasant, it would happen about three or four times a week, but the feet would be unbound regularly in order to be washed. The nails would be checked for infection. The Mm -hmm. nails would get trimmed and the feet were soaked in a mixture that would cause any necrotic flesh to fall off. 
The biggest health concerns with bound feet were first one infections, uh, toenails ended up being like regularly completely removed during Mm -hmm. the process. Well, just Uh, as someone who has like had really nasty ingrown toenail infections, like they're mm -hmm. no joke. Like people actually have died of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, here's the thing. Any kind of infection is a bad infection. There is yeah. not an infection that you can have <laughs> that you can just be like, eh, and like you like it will right. eventually get so bad that you die. This yeah. is like a UTI, an infected toenail, right? Whatever the hell. So another danger was uh, that the bandages, because they were wrapped so tight, would cause circulation issues, which would result in necrosis, uh, which is the dying of tissue, live tissue. Mm -hmm. From that point, infection could enter the bones because they were broken, Mm -hmm. uh, making the bones soft and causing the toes to fall off. This was actually seen as a bonus. Oh, well, because guess, if your toes you fell off, deal with the pesky toes anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a couple inches of real estate right there that you lose. Ugh. So, you know, your foot becomes even smaller. The infections would often be followed by septic shock and death. It's estimated that about at least 10% of the girls who had their feet bound would die from sepsis. Wow. If a girl survived her foot binding into adulthood, her health was still affected for the rest of her life. Her bones were more likely to continue breaking. Yeah. And older women often broke their hips and other bones because they would fall over. They were right. not able to securely balance while standing or walking. So they would just, you know, topple over. Yeah. Paralysis and muscular atrophy were also common. Mm. The practice started to peter out in the late 19th century due in large part to, do you want to take a guess, Scotty, what it was Mm. that got the practice to start going out of fashion? I mean, that's, I mean, almost wonder if like colonization had anything to do with it. Christian missionaries. Ah, yeah. Okay. Yep. Who saw the practice as barbaric. Yeah. Okay. Um, and honestly, it's a little hard to argue at that point. Yeah. It wasn't until the early 20th century that the practice like really, really began to die out. Uh, like I said, in the late 19th century, Christian missionaries, as well as Chinese reformists really started to like do a campaign of like, this is, this is, we fun. need to stop let's, this. I mean, I know it this. like, cause I remember being a kid and like watching some news report. It's like 2020 or something of like a bunch of old women who still like, were still alive, who had Mm-hmm. Yeah, by 2007, only a handful of elderly Chinese women who had had their feet bound were still alive. I mm. don't know. I mean, I would assume that if in 2007 there was only a handful, I assume that by 2021 they're probably gone. Yeah, I would uh, think. But who knows? Yeah. So that's foot binding. Mm. Uh, the pictures of, uh, you can definitely find pictures of it. Watch out. They're not. Yeah, I've, I've, I've seen the pictures. They're not. I didn't understand the entire process, but yeah. just looking at a picture, that's it's not, it's not a fun, happy time picture. It's not a fun, happy time picture. So let's move on to something else that is also not fun or happy time. Okay. Uh, crinolines. So a crinoline is a stiff structured petticoat or underskirt that was designed to hold out a woman's skirt for that sort of big dramatic silhouette, specifically hoop skirts. Mm-hmm. Um, for anybody who doesn't know, a hoop skirt had a literal hoop in it. Yeah. It was the big sort of what you think of when you think of 
of like Civil War era dresses, Gone with the Wind, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Originally, crinolines were made of horse hair and cotton or linen, although later on the the cage part of a crinoline would be constructed uh, from everything from steel to inflatable rubber. And you'll find out why here in just a sec. Uh, So like I said, Mm. the crinolines were meant to create this like voluminous look and to support the fabric of hoop skirts, but having like that much fashion on one body would repeatedly (laughs) prove to be not just dangerous, but actually deadly. Mm. So here are a couple of things that uh, wearing a crinoline could get you into. So they frequently got caught in big gusts of wind Mm -hmm. and would basically turn the wearer into like a human sail. Oh yeah. I just, I'm just imagining like (laughs) someone standing on like a lovely Cornish cliff or something and then like off into the distance, off into the distance. Uh, The garment would frequently get caught in other people's feet, carriage wheels or furniture. Mm, There is a report in the cork examiner from June 2nd, 1864. And it reported that one Anne Rawlinson had died from her injuries after her crinoline was caught by the revolving machinery shaft in the mangling room at Furwood Bleach Works. I mean, just nothing in that sentence made me happy. Yeah, everything about it was pretty rough. Um, yeah. I have worn a hoop skirt and a modern crinoline in a show. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, they are a son of a bitch. <laughs> um, it's they're 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 difficult garments to maneuver in. Yeah. Okay, but what caused the most deaths by crinoline was the fact that crinolines themselves were extraordinarily flammable. Mm. That horsehair and that linen or cotton was just, yep. you know, a, a, a tinderbox. And when you have like a giant ass skirt in a crowded room at a party during the winter, you know, the sort of desire Where, to warm up a bit by the fire is, proved deadly. Yeah. Yeah. Taking your life in your hands. Taking your life in your hands. Yeah. In 1858, it was estimated that an average of three women lost their lives a week in crinoline related fires. That's insane. It's insane. A week. Wow. Yes. Poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, his wife, Fanny, was seated at her library table when either a match or a lit piece of paper hit her skirt and she just went up in flames. Fanny survived until the following morning, but eventually succumbed to her injuries Mm. the next day. Oscar Wilde's two half-sisters died when their crinoline dresses caught on fire and they were, quote, burnt to ash. Wow. Like, I think that's the thing is that they burned so quickly and at such like, and so intensely that, that like there wasn't a lot to be done. Right. There, there wasn't, there was no time to like save anybody. Right. Uh, and because humanity loves to blame women and make us seem frivolous in 1858, the New York times proclaimed quote, an average of three deaths per week from crinolines and in conflagration ought to startle the most thoughtless of the privileged sex and to make them at least extraordinarily careful in their movements and behavior. If it fails to deter them from adopting a fashion so fraught with peril which is like really it's new like, york times like who decided that they were fashionable to begin with yet again the new york times for the win here 
If look, if I've learned anything during the doing of this podcast, it's that the New York Times is frequently like frequently gets it wrong. Like not just wrong, but like full steam like ahead. Shit, like like sh- and shittily wrong. Yeah. Like are women people? Discuss. Um, Okay. So our next one is something called muslin disease. Mm. I'm not going to lie. This is maybe the weirdest thing I'm going to talk about. Okay. (laughs) Um, It's also the most controversial because there are reputable sources that say that it did, that muslin disease did in fact exist, that it was in fact a, a, a problem and an issue in France during this time period. And there are other sources. I don't want to say that they're less reliable, but the sources that I saw that sort of disagreed with this idea, they were mostly fashion blogs. Mm. Um, So make of that what you will. But those other sources were like, this is not actually a real thing. There's no actual proof that this existed, blah, blah, blah. So sounds a little defensive to me, but take it with a grain of salt, I guess. Okay. So I'm going to drop you down into Paris, uh, after, I guess it would be the French revolution, right? After Marie Antoinette was, Mm -hmm. uh, was, you know, met, met her maker at the guillotine. So after this French women were like, okay, like we're eschewing the fashion of Marie Antoinette. We want Mm -hmm. simple, we want loosely structured. We don't want anything ornate or ostentatious. We want Mm -hmm. plain simple. So instead of going for the like layered heavy gowns of Marie Antoinette's day, French women turned to lightweight, high-waisted sheer dresses made of muslin. Okay. Um, Um, So these dresses were relatively shapeless, but because they were made from muslin, which is sheer and thin, the material Mm -hmm. left little to the imagination, especially if a breeze kicked up. Mm. And apparently, also around this time, French ladies started going without underwear exciting so it meant that if the muslin (laughs) fabric like clung to a body like it clung to a body right yeah uh there are a bunch of cartoons and stuff from the day like little comic strips from the day of like french ladies in their muslin dresses and it's like all you know like the muslins like tucked up into the little apple butt Mm -hmm. crack and yeah (laughs) you know like yeah, just real, really like not leaving a lot to the imagination. Right. So I guess whether or not you believe this is a myth or a real story, but the story goes that to accentuate this, French women started wetting their dresses with water before going out, essentially mm. turning French fashion into like one big wet t-shirt contest. I just <laughs> leave it to the French to like innovate. Yeah. Truly yeah, hard. you know, to be like, would you like to see the cleft of my vagina? Here you go. <laughs> oh my god, what a oh bunch god. of pervs! Yeah. I mean, like, good for them, I guess. I like, yeah, man, I, like, get it, I guess. And apparently, the ladies did this regardless of season. You know, and like nothing says pneumonia, like a nice cold French winter and a wet muslin dress. Right. Yeah. Now to sort of combat the idea that this is a myth, there is a record of a pretty 
like kind of intense pneumonia outbreak in okay. France during this time. It is unclear whether this was directly tied to wet muslin dresses, but it did seem to affect a lot of women. I mean, it makes it actually like there's no, where is no the lie. Essentially? I'm no scientist, um, as everyone knows, but like mm-hmm. this seems to track. Like you wear wet clothes out in the middle of winter, like revealing wet clothes. Like we're not talking like you're wet, you know, fucking REI jacket or whatever. Right. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, you're going to get pneumonia. Like that just like, it seems like right. not a leap to me. Yeah. And I mean, I'm also going to say it's not a leap to me that French women would be like, you know what? Throw a couple of buckets of water on me. Like yeah. let's really, really like really focus that on my rear because i want to show this thing off yeah Yeah. so you know take that story with a grain of salt or don't uh i think it's a good time regardless (laughs) um okay bella belladonna eye drops Mm. so you know everybody loves a big pair of doe eyes Mm During the Renaissance, they actually became quite fashionable to use belladonna eye drops to get that wide-eyed look because belladonna, also known as deadly nightshade, (laughs) I was going to say, dilates the pupils. So, other things, but yeah. uh, Yes. Uh, so it would, you know, give everybody who used them that sort of like big Bambi look uh, that, you know, all the Renaissance folks were so fond of. Quick mm-hmm. little um, sidebar. I saw a couple of sources that said that Belladonna is the poisonous berry used to make the potion that would make Juliet appear to be dead in Romeo and Juliet. Mm-hmm. Um, guys, I didn't go and do the research on this. I'm just saying that it said that in a couple of places. I, <laughs> I don't know if that's mentioned in the script or not. I could believe it. You know, make of that what you will. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Belladonna also happens to be one of the most poisonous plants found in the Eastern Hemisphere. (laughs) Ingesting the plant, especially the root, can cause heart disease, skin irritations, and blindness. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are also rumors that it can cause mental illness and spontaneous miscarriage. Uh, Spontaneous miscarriage, I can buy. Mm -hmm. Mental illness is a little harder for me to take for me to yeah that i would want to like do more reading on that because i mean Mm -hmm. there's all sorts of environmental things that like can degrade your cognition yes i'm not going to talk about it in this episode but mad like the mad hatter was the real thing that uh (laughs) hatters would in fact go insane because they would use mercury right. um, to get fur to stick to the material of the hats that they were making. But the mm-hmm. thing is, is that, again, you're talking about people who are probably like elbows deep in this material every day of their right. professional lives. And so, yes, that would, you know, cause deterioration of. of but uh, of yeah, like brain. you said, it's like over time and like, yeah, intense exposure. So, yeah. And I don't know, maybe if you were like, you know, fucking, I mean, the eyes are Belladonna, like a, like Visine, like a stoner with Visine yeah. as I reach, <laughs> as I reach for my rewetting drops. I'm not a stoner. It's just the desert and I have dry <laughs> eyes. Um, well, and I mean, like the thing is like the eye is pretty porous and that's a pretty like direct shot 
down that optic nerve to your brain. So true, very true. Yeah, that it, it it's not unbelievable to me that there's a connection. Right. Like it's not unbelievable, but it just it was like it caused mental illness. And I was like, can I have a bit more? Yeah. Like I, I need more. Yeah. Uh the Wikipedia article on Belladonna was woefully lacking. Mm. Um Wikipedia, if anybody wants to get on that. Okay. Our next one, lead face paint. I was wondering if you were going to go get to that. Yes. Yes. Okay. So between the 15th and 18th centuries, you know what? Nothing said beauty more than a ghost white face. (laughs) 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 The fucking toilet bowl colored face. Okay. Um, We're not even going to get into the racial and classist implications of this trend. Sure. Uh, But I'm sure Scotty, you and you, our dear listeners can probably connect those dots for yourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. So the problem was, is that not everybody was born with that kind of porcelain complexion and those that weren't had a little trick up their sleeve. And that trick was lead face paint known as Venetian ruse or uh, spirits of Saturn. Mm -hmm. It was powdered lead that was mixed with water and vinegar and spread thickly over the face to create that ghastly glow. Mm -hmm. Um, Additionally, since bathing like wasn't really a thing from the 15th to the 18th century and women didn't want to waste all that good lead, they wouldn't wash their faces Mm. in order to get more mileage out of their makeup. So they would like sleep in it and do all the things and basically just wear a full face of lead until it rubbed off. Yeah. Uh, Which meant that it had plenty of time to seep into the pores and bloodstreams of the wearer. Uh, If you'll remember from our lead crime, well, from my lead crime uh, Mm -hmm. segment, lead isn't really great for the human body. (laughs) (laughs) On like any level, really? On any level? uh, Yeah. Yeah. So prolonged use of lead face paint would lead to lead poisoning, skin damage, hair loss, and death. Right. It is commonly believed that Elizabeth I of England used lead face paint, although I did see other sources that were like, she didn't. Mm. But I'm like, okay, she's like real white in those portraits. Like real white, like unnaturally white. Real white. Real white. Uh, Maria Coventry, Countess of Coventry, she died at 27. She was a frequent wearer of lead face paint, and she's thought to have died of lead poisoning. Mm -hmm. Isabella d'Este, she was a leading woman in the Italian Renaissance, and she, you know, was nuts about the stuff and she used mm-hmm. it all of the time, even though the paint caused permanent damage and premature aging to her skin. Mm. In 1534, some asshole named Pietro Aretino said, quote, said her smeared face was, quote, dishonestly ugly and even more dishonestly made up, which like, honestly, who the fuck asked you, Pietro? Like, yeah. who asked for you to give an opinion on this? <laughs> yeah. And what do you look like, you a-hole? <laughs> So rude. Okay. Shields green. This might be my favorite. One of the things that I researched for this. Okay. Okay. So in 1775, Carl Wilhelm Scheele, he was a Swedish German pharmaceutical chemist, created a brilliant emerald green dye by heating sodium carbonate adding arsenious oxide, Mm. stirring until the mixture was dissolved, and then adding copper sulfate to the final solution. It produced this beautiful 
brilliant emerald green color. Mm -hmm. The green was actually invented almost by accident and sort of in a bit of a premonition a year before the color went into mass production. Scheele wrote a friend of his um, saying that like maybe users might want to know about how it's poisonous. Yeah, I was going to say. Maybe uh, in case anybody was wondering, arsenious oxide is in fact arsenic that i was that i was gonna ask because that yeah sure sounded suspicious yeah um so even though the color was like chock full of arsenic it was striking it was a beautiful color and more importantly yeah. it was profitable so what was special about this green is that it was a green that up until shield discovered it pretty much by accident mm -hmm. it was a green that only existed in nature no green dye or coloring had come anywhere close to producing the green that you would find okay. in nature it wasn't too yellow it didn't tip over into teal um mm -hmm. and it was full saturation it didn't have any gray tints or brown undertones like it was the color green. of nature yes yeah. this is particularly important because during this time we're talking we're talking about Victorians in London and Paris. And it's the middle of the Industrial Revolution. So everything is grimy and gray and covered in soot and it's nasty. And Victorians were hungry for these like vibrant, verdant spaces. Mm -hmm. um, little side note, this is also the time when the English and other Europeans started to protect green spaces and urban settings. As a matter of fact, a lot of London's best public gardens date back to this time. So mm -hmm. they were really trying to like find any bit of, of nature um, right. during this time, which is, I also think a very interesting thing because we're talking again about the industrial revolution. It's, which is a pretty significant leap forward yeah. in modern civilization and that everybody was like, yes, things are becoming like automated and, you know, we're able to produce more and faster. And I would still like to like, look at a leaf right. every now and then because of this artificial flowers and plants became all the rage. Of course, again, we're talking, you know, dirty, grimy London, right. and most of Europe, real plants didn't have a long lifespan. They probably weren't growing very well <laughs> in, in, in the air and yeah. lack of sunlight there. So people discovered that if they could make realistic looking artificial flowers and plants that people were like, oh my God, like fill my house with them. Mm -hmm. Of course, that was filling homes with arsenic covered yeah. plants and flowers. So even though Victorians were at this time well aware of the dangers of ingesting arsenic, mm -hmm. the color eventually found its way into dresses, waistcoats, shoes, gloves, trousers, wallpaper, rugs, textiles, food coloring, drinks. Food coloring. <laughs> mm -hmm. It was Shields Green Fever. Oh, okay. For the most part, people who wore shields green would like maybe have a little rash or a little skin irritation, like at most, maybe a couple of like oozing sores. <laughs> at, at worst. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like not so bad. Um, I will say that by 1859, there were some folks that were beginning to wonder if like maybe, like just maybe all of this arsenic is not... Might be doing more harm than good. Yeah. Just like, just food for thought. Yeah. Like, possibly, maybe, you know, you've had that, those few oozing sores that just aren't getting any better. And they're like, <laughs> maybe, 
maybe this isn't good. Yeah. Uh, so Dr. Eng Gabriel Maxime Vernois uh, went to visit a workshop in Paris. And, you know, he's like looking around. He's like walking through the tables and he starts examining the hands of the workers. He sort of looks past their like, you know, chewed up fingernails and their ragged cuticles up their mm. sore covered arms to the creases of their elbows that he found caked with the brilliant dust. Mm-hmm. On November 20th, 1861, 19-year-old Matilda Schur died. Uh, it is said that before her death, she vomited green waters. Ooh. The whites of her eyes had turned green. Ooh. And she said that everything she looked at was green. Uh, an autopsy found that arsenic had gotten to her stomach, liver, lungs. Her body had completely been taken over by arsenic wow. dust that she inhaled while, while dusting artificial leaves with a green powder to make them look more lifelike. Mm. Uh, I will say that a year prior to uh, people being like, maybe should we like maybe think about all this arsenic a year prior to that in 1858 21 people died from ingesting arsenic laced candies sold by someone known as humbug billy (laughs) and that's all i could find out about that (laughs) i mean that sounds like an episode right there if we could do the research (laughs) do you ever think about like the weird shit that makes it into history books (laughs) Like that somebody was like, somebody be sure to write down that humbug Billy gave everybody arsenic laced candies. Cause let's remember that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's actually even thought that Napoleon was actually poisoned by his green wallpaper. Mm. Interesting. Uh, stuff I read was that in the doing of his autopsy, people who've like seen the records are like, he definitely had enough arsenic in his system to make him sick. Yeah. Uh, but probably not kill him. So, but it might've been like a contributing. Maybe. To just shitty health. I've, yeah. I've never read about how he died. So. Yeah. Let's yeah. Full disclosure. I don't know a lot about Napoleon. I'm not super interested in him. <laughs> yeah. um, so there's that. Finally, around 1868, UK legislators were like, okay, right, we're done. maybe, yeah, let's <laughs> like maybe, maybe let's try to like regulate how much arsenic is going into stuff. Yeah. What, what do we think about that? Uh, if you want a really good read on not only Shills Green, but also why green itself is a problematic color even today, go and read the Paris Review article titled Shields green the color of fake foliage and death Hmm. um if anybody wants a cliff's notes green is terrible the color green cannot be green it is terrible for the environment you Hmm. cannot make it in a clean and ecologically sound way way. yes uh which sucks because i look great in green (laughs) but alas yeah. Okay. And just in case you thought that deadly fashion only affected women, I'm going to talk to you about detachable high collars. So back in the 1800s, okay, the stuff I saw was like men, but let's be honest, it wasn't men, it was their wives, didn't mm-hmm. want to have to wash and press a new shirt every day. Mm-hmm. And so to combat this, a detachable stiff collar was invented so that men could change out their collars and be like, quote unquote, fresh and ready for a new day, which... Mm-hmm fucking gross yeah okay because that shirt is still all up in your pants no, i mean i i change my clothes like three times a day because i'm like weird germaphobe and can you imagine if you were just like no man just a new collar 
no. fresh and fresh and clean. No, no, thank you. <laughs> okay, so these detachable collars were a few inches tall. Like mm-hmm. you think of a detachable collar and then think of something bigger. <laughs> <laughs> I will, of course, post pictures so everybody can understand what I'm talking about. But they were a few inches tall and they were starched into oblivion. Mm-hmm. They were dubbed Vatermurder in German or <laughs> father killer. <laughs> They were so stiff and tight that they would cut off blood supply to the carotid artery. Yeah, okay. Okay, so a dude would like leave his, you know, job overseeing a factory or something. He would go to his gentleman club, toss back a few brandies or whatever, nod off in a chair, Uh, and essentially and die. I also want to say that I don't know how common these collars were in Latin America, but if they were, surely many a family lost the father figure to these collars as Latino fathers are notorious for nodding off any and everywhere. (laughs) Uh, They probably had somebody that was just like Senor and would like tilt their head back. In 1888, the New York Times ran an obituary that read choked by his own collar. Uh, So apparently a man named. So like people knew. Like, no, yeah, yeah, no, it wasn't like, oh, this happened once. Like, it happened enough that people were like, oh, this is not good. Yeah. Um, so apparently a man named John Cruzzi was found dead in a park. The coroner hypothesized that homeboy had been drinking. He'd passed out on a park bench where his head had dropped over his chest. The collar blocked his windpipe, which was mm. already the like, sorry, collar blocked his windpipe checked the flow of blood through his already constricted veins, quote, mm-hmm. causing death to ensue from asphyxia and apoplexy. Mm-hmm. So just like taking out fathers left and right. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to just wrap this up by saying, even though we poke a lot of fun at the youngs with their high-waisted mom jeans and their <laughs> chunky sneakers, they might be on to something because to the best of my knowledge, no one has died a tragic death from loose p- pants and flat-soled shoes. And that is just some of history's most deadly That's fashions. The, uh, I mean, it's, it's funny. Like the, you know, obviously... I knew about foot binding and corsets mm-hmm. and stuff, but like, you know, just something as basic as a collar. I mean, kill you. Just, yeah. I just don't know how like our species survived like the 1800s. Like, I mean, it's, it's, it's a bit <laughs> of a wonder, you know what yeah. I mean? Because we, we haven't have, figured anything out yet. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just like, here's mom on fire because her crinoline got too close to the, fucking fireplace mm-hmm. and the dad is like being strangled by his own collar like right and you know and you know auntie's in the next room with her her <laughs> table large vibrator curing her hysteria right. and like you know sis has died in childbirth because doctors don't believe in washing hands yet but here and let's like- put some belladonna in your eyes so you look real pretty like <laughs> so you can get a husband <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it is. I mean, honestly, honestly, it is surprising that Western civilization survived the Victorian era. I mean, it's like people are like, oh, it's amazing that we survived the nuclear age without nuking ourselves. Like, it's amazing we made it to the nuclear age. It really is. It really, really is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So good job, humans. 
Um, <laughs> and yeah, like I said, if you, I'm going to stick with my cargo shorts and death metal t-shirts, I think, you know, do, do your thing, do your thing. Uh, if it keeps you safe, you know, better safe <laughs> than sorry. And like I said, rock those mom jeans, rock those chunky sneakers and and yeah, stay safe. Don't become a fashion victim. Literally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just a real quick sidebar. Um, yes. I have not actually seen the movie yet, but I've been hearing like nothing but great things about it, but there's actually a movie uh, came out within the last couple of years called in fabric. That's a horror movie about like a demonically possessed dress. Interesting. It's like a murdery dress. Uh-huh. And I've been seeing it like it's been making a lot of like greatest horror movies of all time lists. So, really? Yeah. I'm I'm really, really curious to watch this movie. Interesting. Well, a lot of the articles that I read also started with the urban legend of the girl who like, you know, bought a dress, a party dress secondhand and went mm-hmm. to a dance and she was dancing and having a wonderful time. And then she was like, Oh, don't feel very well. And like sat down for a little bit and then kept dancing and then ended up dying. Uh, and, you know, urban legend is that she had bought the dress at a secondhand store who had gotten it from like a, some undertakers who had, you know, it had been on a dead body and mm. the formaldehyde from the dead body had like seeped yeah. into the dress and then yeah, poisoned. I think I heard um, that urban legend. Yeah. But I don't think that's true. I mean, yeah, not that I don't think the urban legend is true. I mean, I don't think formaldehyde can soak into clothing. Yeah. <laughs> not, I mean, that does seem like believability scale. We'll put that one. Believability scale is Fairly zero. Yeah, yeah. I think for me, unless anybody has any like, no man, like for real that happens, but also happens. I feel my cousin or something <laughs> <laughs> look you can come at me with a, that happened to your cousin but don't come at me with that happened to uh, a woman who's in an mlm that my cousin did a party for a friend <laughs> of like don't don't come at me with that yeah. shit also i'm just gonna say everybody is like so, so like you know it's always like that has formaldehyde in it you know what else has formaldehyde in it apples pears yeah. Have formaldehyde in it. So re- everybody relax. Relax the about the formaldehyde okay? epidemic. Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <The> formaldehyde. <laughs> Nobody's trying to, it's not big formaldehyde who's trying to <laughs> like get you. Okay. It's a naturally occurring chemical compound that is in a lot of stuff. So just like fucking relax about it. I swear yeah. to God, if I hear one more person be like, that has formaldehyde in it. So do you, you have formaldehyde <laughs> in you. Don't talk to me anymore. <laughs> We haven't had a good old fashioned rant in a bit. So I guess it was time. Yeah. (laughs) About formaldehyde. Yeah. Yes. Okay. But so this, what is the name of the movie again? It's called In Fabric. Um, Mm. And it's, I've seen the trailer. It looks really, because it's like, like, I don't know if anyone remembers, there's a movie came out a few years ago called Rubber about like an evil tire that's rolling around killing people. And so when I heard about this movie about an evil dress, I was kind of like, okay. Like, it's Mm -hmm. just like more of that kind of thing. But then, like, I've had a couple people, more than a couple people be like, you have to watch In Fabric. Like, it's amazing. And I watched the trailer and I was like, oh, this looked like it's really evocative. It's like got a very 70s kind of Dario Argento, like, giallo, like, Italian horror film kind of vibe to it like very european and like it's been getting just like crazy buzz about being how terrifying it is Mm -hmm. and like i've i've seen a few lists that are like 50 greatest horror movies of all time and it's coming in at like 47 you know interesting and i'm like okay like let's slow down a little bit you know (laughs) like (laughs) 
but like that but it i mean it's definitely makes me think like that's one worth watching so interesting on my list okay put it on the list finally finish my um i'm finally in season 15 of criminal minds (laughs) almost fucking done with this thing i did take a break uh i did watch uh some classic horror movies over the weekend oh yeah this was halloween weekend so oh yeah 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 i did i was like okay i'm gonna actually like like i watched halloween three which is like a fucking batshit bonkers movie if you've never seen it um, okay not great but like has like these moments of brilliance in it okay watched uh david cronenberg's the brood which is just one of my all-time favorites uh okay. village of the dam and then uh halloween 2 which is terrible and okay like a waste of time which is the one with the little girl well which one with the little the girl? halloween movie with the little girl there's a halloween she's like book. in yeah, where she's in the little clown outfit. Oh, that, uh, well, that could be Halloween 3 if she's in like a little clown outfit. Yeah, she's in like the, she's got like the big collar and it's like the, you know, like the double collar with a big poofy. Uh, I'm not sure that's a Halloween movie. Yes, it <laughs> or is. Or it could be like, I mean, I, I, full disclosure, I've never seen Halloween like five. Like, you know, once you get later into the franchise on most of those like 80s slasher movie franchises they're just unwatchable so i usually give up around the third movie okay, and wait for the 20 years later reboot okay what okay more results please not halloween town which one is it i have no i think it's i think it has to be hold on which one is it okay i'm gonna find out i'm gonna find <laughs> out is it it can't be it can't be is it this one it is okay sorry my bad it was four halloween four okay yeah it was a return of michael myers i've never seen it i've never been interested the thing about halloween three i know we're like totally off subject now but the thing about halloween three is like just a little bit of movie trivia for you so john carpenter's original plan with the halloween Mm -hmm. franchise was Mm -hmm. he wanted to do kind of like an american horror story kind of thing where each movie of the franchise was like a completely new story Okay. Like the first ones, you know, it was the original script was called The Babysitter Murders. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, you know, gonna be about Laurie Strode and Michael Myers and these babysitter murders. And then he wanted Halloween two to be a completely new movie, like have nothing to do with you know the Michael Myers story. But the production company was like, Well, Halloween was such a huge success, they just like they jumped into during Halloween two, which is basically well, yeah, and it basically it just it like starts like the second that Halloween, the first movie is done, and then okay. just like finishes off the night with like Michael Myers murdering people in a hospital, and like okay. the story doesn't make any sense. There's no character. It's but whatever. It was a big hit. Well, then John Carpenter finally for Halloween three was able to try his anthology thing. Oh, so okay. Halloween three has like it's a completely different story about like an evil toy maker trying i don't even want to get into it because like it's so bonkers you just have to like see it for yourself okay uh, but it was like a huge like failure because people at this point were like oh no we want michael myers we want michael, Is michael like, myers in that halloween movie no in the, in the he's not in the third one no it's it has nothing to, the only what's funny is when you watch the movie they actually are watching halloween in uh-huh. the movie so it's like because it takes place on halloween night okay. and you see people like watching uh 
TV and it's like the cla- the Halloween classics during Jamie Lee Curtis. And it's, so it's oh, like Halloween is actually a movie within the world of Halloween 3. Like, yeah. Okay. Okay. And it, it's got one scene. Halloween 3 got, has one scene that is among the most terrifying scenes in any horror movie ever. And if anyone's seen the movie, they know what I'm talking about. Um, but then the rest of the movie, you're just like, what the fuck even is this movie? Like, <laughs> it is so fucking weird right. and bonkers. So uh, it's worth it's worth checking out. But definitely skip Halloween too. Okay, um, it's not worth watching. And I can't say anything about Halloween four or any okay. of those. I've never seen them. So I don't know why I've seen that one, but I have. Yeah. All right. Good, Good episode. <laughs> awkward let's just like close this out as awkwardly as possible (laughs) what if we just ended it there okay bye bye (laughs) (laughs) i'm I'm saying i'm saying okay i'll do the i'll do the sign off okay sorry everybody we're not ending it that weird y'all please stay weird stay curious stay safe uh you know we're not we're not quite at the end of the pandemic just yet take care of yourselves be nice to your neighbors and we'll see you in a few weeks bye bye so listen friends we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find might be true and that's the weirdest thing